I'm doing it. So last week, full disclosure, um, I'm on Anchor FM. And so full disclosure, I did my first one last week and it came out pretty decent. Although I am now cognizant that I have to be careful how much I bang the table. I'm a hand talker. I'm from New York. So I think I was moving a lot or moving my hands a lot. And so you could hear it on the recording. So hopefully we don't hear so much of that this week. But if you're interested in hearing the audio after this, you want to go back, it will be up by tomorrow on my Anchor FM, which I will share on my Twitter. I'm at Sarina of HR. So there's that. So the profit, this book, guys, it's phenomenal. I mean, I tell you every week that pretty much like all the books that I'm sharing with you are phenomenal, but this is just really, really cool. Um, so let me just recap some of the books that I've done so far because I think it's important for people who have not been on the previous shows to understand like what I've covered. So the first week we did The Dear Queen Journey by Sylvester McNutt. Love, love, love him. Um, that we covered a lot on love, self-love and, you know, just embracing yourself wholly. So that was the first week. Last week we did Mind Right, Life Right by Ash Cash. And that was a really good deep dive into law of attraction and, um, you know, just keeping a good and positive mindset to be able to manifest your dreams or manifest the things that you want. So that was last week. So now here we are, uh, week three, and there will be one more week unless people tell me they love, love, love this, and maybe I'll do it longer. But I think I might bring it back in the fall um, because I enjoy doing it. So whether or not you guys tell me, although by the viewership, I can tell that people like this, um, I will probably bring it back in the fall again after I've read like a lot more books. So anyhow, tonight we're talking about The Prophet. It's written by Khalil Gibran. Uh, a little background on Khalil Gibran. He is a Lebanese writer um, of uh, Syrian, some Syrian heritage, or at least Syrian nationality. So he lived some time in Syria, but spent the bulk of his life here stateside in the United States. He is most well known as a um, painter, um, but also as a poet and a short story writer and essentially he's known for you know being a, a big um big figure in the romantic movement and you know the earlier part of the 20th century he is noted as being somebody that really um progressed arabic literature and brought this whole romantic aspect that had been missing otherwise from Arabic literature because of a lot of the underpinnings of, um, you know, like culture and religion and things like that. He really kind of pushed the gamut from what I've read of him. So, um, you know, he's, he's an interesting character. He lived from 1883 to 1931 and the prophet was written in 1923. So unlike the last two books that I've discussed with you guys, which are very new uh, pieces of literature, if you will, this is a older book and I'm excited about it because I, I'm always fascinated 
when a book has been written a really long time ago and still has meaning for the things that we're living through and, and dealing with today. I think that's pretty profound. I think if a writer can have written something in a time that was, you know, not primitive, but in a time where things were less complicated, in a time that doesn't necessarily encompass all the components uh, or complexities that we're experiencing now, and then for you to be able to pick up that book now, like in 2018, after it being written in 1923, and it still had meaning, I think that is extraordinary, you know, because it's almost, you know, in a lot of ways when I was reading it, and it's called The Prophet, I think for good reason, it is, you know, almost prophetic in terms of you know, how he talks about everything. So just to kind of give you an idea of how the chapters are laid out. The chapters are laid out based on themes. Uh, and I, you know, there's like 20 something chapters. So I would not dare go through like that entire thing with you on one show or attempt to do it because it's really a lot to unpack. Uh, so we'll look at a few different chapters, the ones that I felt stood out, although all of them really are awesome so I really encourage you to get it um, if you can and actually on Kindle if you are a Amazon Prime member I believe it's free it's a read for free on Kindle which is probably why I have it on Kindle although I think I will buy the book just because it's that good I think I will buy it and keep it so but um, it is a free read if you're on Kindle and have an Amazon Prime account. So like I was saying, the book is prophetic. Uh, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, the chapters are written by themes. And the layout of, of the way that, you know, the themes come through, it's not like, it's not a direct conversation with you per se, more so than it is, it, so the setting is basically that um, the prophet has been in this town of Almitra for many years and, you know, it's finally getting a chance to leave the town and you almost imagine the town as being like barricaded in, almost very elusive. I don't know, this is how I was envisioning it as I read it, but any event, He's now right on the precipice of leaving this town that he has been a part of, a town where he's made a mark, where he presumes but isn't quite sure that he's made an impact or had some influence on the people. And so like these boats, these ships are coming in to come and take him away you know, to this, this, his homeland, his homeland that he's always dreamed about, that he's always wanted to see. But before he leaves, he, you know, goes around to the people, I guess, to say goodbye. And before he says goodbye, he allows them to ask their last questions of him um, about anything. And so that's where the themes come from. So let's jump into some of what are those what those themes are. So um, one of the first themes that you meet in the book is love. And so somebody steps up to ask him, 
you know, what what is your thoughts on love? And so what he says is very interesting. And then I'll discuss like what I think about it and, and how it's kind of, you know, played out in my own world and, and how I'm making sense of it. So on love, he says, when love beckons to you, follow him. Even as he is for your growth, he is for your pruning. And think not that you can direct the course of love. For love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. So those, though that cluster there, um, when you read it, you'll find that I kind of took certain um, stanzas and put them together because those don't go together, although they sound really good. So I don't know, maybe they should have gone together. Um, but I found those lines very interesting because, you know, I think like in our culture, we talk a lot about how like, you know, you fall in love and it, and it almost carries you away. And it's like this very whimsical thing. And, you know, like it, it kind of struck me because I thought about like my own relationship. Uh, it's, you know, when I was starting out with my husband and how like I had these, this very specific vision for like what I wanted to do and where I was going to go. Like I was going to go study abroad and I was going to have like this fabulous life where like I traveled, but I studied, but you know, I was in like all these foreign places and, you know, I was, that was going to be my life. And it was like, I met him and like, we started dating and it's just interesting, like in reading this, um, how it's so true that like when you, when love comes into your life or when it finds you worthy, as he says, that, you know, it's almost like, I won't say you're not in control, but it's almost like you can't direct its course. Like nobody could have told me, you know, hey, you weren't going to do A, B, C, D that you planned for yourself because you're going to fall in love with this man, right? Like I just fell in love and suddenly like there were just more practical uh, choices on the table. And, and I chose those instead of, you know, pursuing what I thought was my course. So I thought that that was an interesting way to kind of start off the book in such a true statement. I mean, I, I do think a lot of what we talk about in terms of love is really um, made for TV, very whimsy, very um, crunchy, if you will. But this much, I think, is true. And the more that I, I kind of look at love and examine it further, because a lot of the books I have been reading are either poetry books or they're books that really take a deeper dive on looking at love. I think that this is so, so true. Um, I think, you know, like fundamentally, it's the one thing that we are all here for is like love. And, and I think, you know, like a lot, I think many of us haven't really found the, the it thing, like that true thing, that true unadulterated um, love that, you know, you almost see in movies, but um, don't think it's attainable. But I feel like when you do, it's just like how he kind of laid it out. It's the kind of thing that grows you. It's the kind of thing that um, forms you. So it's not just a growth thing, but it really does 
form and inform who you are. And it's not something you can avoid. Like, I think you can try to resist it, but when it hits you, it hits you. It's really, I think that's probably where they get the whole kind of Cupid concept with. And I know there's some other historical factors there, but I really think that that's where that concept comes from. Not because there is a legitimate person that has wings and like hits you with an arrow in your heart, but that, you know, when it does happen, it's, it's such a thing that it grabs onto you and you can't help but recognize it, pay attention to it, honor it, um, and grow from it. So that's one of the first chapters he starts off with. And so you can probably understand already why I was like hooked into this because it's just so profound and such good writing. So the other chapter I want to discuss with you guys is ahead from chapter two, it's chapter eight, and it's on joy and sorrow. And so somebody else comes forward from the village and again asks, hey, you know, what do you have to say on joy and sorrow? And what the prophet said was, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And to be honest with you, I, I had to read that a few times to understand like what the intention of that is. Uh, so essentially what he goes on to talk about in this chapter is how your joy and your sorrow are the exact same things and that one doesn't necessarily exist with the other. And it's only when you have felt your deepest sorrow that you can experience your greatest joy, right? And it just, that also hit me because like I can think back to just me being in business for myself, right? And like the first, the first year out, like after I left my full-time job and I was like, you know, I had a lot of things in the cooker but I was, I had mostly sown a lot of seeds um, and put some things in play, but nothing was yet ready for harvest. <clears throat> and so I was in this like period of this very strange period of time in which I felt like I had to relearn myself because I was like decompressing from corporate life. And then I also had like pretty much nothing because... I was new in business, all the clients that I had and I was serving, I'd served them and that was that, right? And so there was, I call that year my year of tears. Um, people that are close to me know that it's my year of tears. I don't talk about the year in specific because I never want to repeat it again. But it was, but I, I, what I'm getting at is I had experienced such deep sorrow that particular year that when things, when those seeds did become sown, when I was able to harvest those seeds that I was planting, and when I did finally start to get some breaks in my business, um, the joy I felt was unlike anything I'd ever felt in my life. And it's because of what he's saying right here about how like, you can't experience the depth of joy unless you've gone through the depths of pain. And at that time, I had gone through the depths of pain, literally. And I think it's because in understanding what he's saying here, it helped me understand and put that in perspective. It's like 
if I had had it easy, right? If I had gotten everything I wanted at that particular time, which was clients and money and prestige, like everything, would would my wins have been as sweet is the question, right? Um, and I think based on my experience, I'd have to say probably not. I would have expected it if it just kept happening. And I think what he's getting at is, you know, you can't experience joy without sorrow. It's in your sorrow that, you know, there's almost this next transition into um, joy and vice versa. Joy is also fleeting and it's from there that, you know, there's some levels of sorrow. So I just thought that was also a really good point. Um, and then the way that it's it's kind of written it's so, it's short and quick. Like the lessons are really short. They're quick. Um, this one, like I said, I had to sit with it a little bit more because I didn't understand. Like, what does he mean? Joy and sorrow the same. But when I was able to apply it to my own life and my own experiences, it made sense. So I enjoyed that chapter as well. So let's talk about the chapter and theme on work. So his, his, ideas about work are very interesting in that somebody else comes forward and asks him, you know, what do you think about work? And essentially he says that, you know, for you to be idle is to become a stranger in the seasons. And I took that to mean that like, if you're not doing anything, if there's no work or purpose to your life or anything that you do that adds purpose to your life on a day-to-day -day basis, you kind of get lost in the strands of time, right? So I think at first I was like, I didn't know what to do with it because I, I have some funny ways I feel about work. Not that I feel like we should all just be nomads and not do anything at any given time, but um, it. I guess I thought what he was trying to get forth is to toil, right? And to toil and to have meaningful work are two different things. When I really read it more thoroughly, I realized that he was talking more about making sure that whatever work you do in your life is something that's meaningful. So like he gives examples about how when you don't do work that's aligned with you, what it breeds. So he's like, you know, if you work in a winery and your job is to smash the grapes that makes the wine, but you hate your job, you are infusing that wine with poison because you didn't enjoy it. If you're a bread maker and you know you don't like to make bread and that's not your thing, that bread will be poisoned and will never fill a man's stomach. Like these were, th this were the words that he used in, in the book. And, you know, so it, it's very kind of olden times in terms of some of the jobs, but still very applicable in the sense that like when you think about the workforce, like for me, especially because you guys know, like that's my space. So in the past on this show, when we've talked about things like employee engagement um, and why like a mere 13% of the world's population is even happy doing the work that they do. Like only 13% of the world's population is actually happy doing the work that they do every day. So based on what he's saying, if you take it from what he's going on and you look at like society and the world 
um, and the things that are playing out, it gets it becomes pretty clear why there's so much poison in the world or why there are so many issues and maladies in the world. And it's probably because we have this misalignment between what people are passionate about, what people find as meaningful work for them, and what they actually do. For the most part, most people are doing jobs that they have to do. So they've got to pay bills or they fell in it, whatever it is, but it's not the work they were meant to do. And actually, if I had to count the amount of people I meet, whether speaking through clients, friends, um, who tell me on a regular basis they're not in jobs that make them feel fulfilled or jobs that make them happy, then you understand fully where he's coming from. Um, so one of the other things he says on this chapter is, you know, when you work with love, you bind yourself to yourself and to one another and to God. And so that's why I was able to make that distinction and that connect those dots between like what we see playing out in the world on the world stage and how important it is to have people who are guided by their work, empowered passionate about their work uh, versus a lot of people who just aren't happy. Like when I think about, I think about people that work at the DMV or civil service, like I can think back to when I went to go get my marriage certificate and just, you know, how the women at the town hall were just so nasty, so disgruntled. And it's like, you know, are they doing anybody a service by being that nasty or being as they are? No, not at all. Is it possible that they're great people? Absolutely. Are they probably in work that's not fulfilling them? For sure. So I think that that's what he was getting at with the work. I think at first glance, I thought he was meaning like toil, work to the bone, which is a problem now, but that really wasn't it. It was really more about finding the work that's meaningful for you. And if you can do that, then sky's the limit. And by doing work that's meaningful for you, you also bless other people. That was what I got from it. So that was a good chapter. And that's chapter seven for anybody that plans on reading. So um, the other chapter that I really enjoyed was on reason and passion. And this really kind of resonates for me because I think I struggle in this way often. So... I am, I am a thinker. I probably overthink more times than not, than I should, but I'm learning, right? And so this chapter is really about like, you know, striking that balance. Although I imagine that that balance is different for everybody. He really does try to give a framework for you to understand like why each is important. So, you know, essentially he says, you know, your soul is a battlefield uh, between reason and passion, right? So it's this whole thing of at any given time, we're always battling with ourselves internally on what we think we should do versus what we want to do. So what we want to do is kind of like our appetite, as he calls it. And what we're thinking is what we feel is rational or the things that we're you know, it's the things that we're tying, like, morality back to or tying back to values or tying back to things we learned through education or things that we learned 
through our parents and our families and our cultures, right? And so basically saying at any given time, we're caught between those two worlds. And what he goes on to say is that some people think that they can live on reason alone. And if you choose to do that, that is a very confining way of living. I've learned this the hard way. Trust. Um, it's so true. And then he says that if you choose to live by passion alone, without any reason, then you will burn yourself basically to the point of destruction. Because all you're doing is feeding your appetite your appetite and doing exactly what you want to do without any calibration, if you will. So that is true. So I've never been that person, right? Like I've never been the passion person that just fed my appetite. I've been on the other end of the spectrum where I've used reason for everything to justify everything in my life. And it is very, very confining because without passion, um, or without you satisfying a little of your appetite, I think you don't grow and I don't think you learn very much either. And vice versa, I imagine if you, you know, I've, I've seen, I think from observing people who only feed their appetite and don't use reason, they absolutely do self-destruct um, because they're just in a constant state. It's almost hedonist in nature. Like they are just in a constant state feeding the beast what they want when they want how they want without any aforethought for consequences essentially so you know both separately are self-destructive onto themselves but in unison there's a nice flow to life and that's what he tries to kind of bring forth in this chapter is that if you can employ a little, if you can, he, I think the specific thing he said is you should rest in reason and move in passion. I love that, you know, so it's almost like, you know, rest easy on your values and understand where those lie and your integrity, but always move with passion, you know, which is what gives your life meaning, um, you know, which is what excites you, like move towards what excites you essentially. So it's a great lesson for me. It's one that I am continuing to work through because I am very, um, it's not that I'm not creative or imaginative because I am, but I'm very logic based. Like I'm always very focused on like, what is the right way to do this? Or, you know, is there a wrong way? Or, you know, what is the reason for this? Like, I just, that's just how my brain works. And you have to infuse your life with passion. Otherwise, there's no point. And like I said, on both ends of the spectrum, there's self-destruction. So if you're only living in logic all the time, you're going to self-destruct. And I think with passion, for sure, it, for obvious reasons, like I said, it's very hedonist in nature. Um, you self-destruct there too. So I enjoyed that particular lesson as well. So the last chapter that I want to discuss, because like I said, 26 chapters, there's a lot there. I mean, he goes through pain, 
he talks about houses and, and how to regard that. Um, there's a chapter on death and marriage, um, friendship. There's so much that like literally to unpack each of these things, we could be here hours. And I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. So I'm just picking my favorites. And just for anybody that may have to jump off, hop on, or has hopped on late, I am talking about the prophet by uh, the prophet by Khalil Gibran. Um, that is the book talk today, and I'm just kind of going through some of my favorite chapters that I enjoyed. So the last chapter I want to discuss is on self knowledge. That's the theme, self knowledge, and it is chapter seventeen. So in this chapter. What I took away from it was basically never to live in absolutes or never to, never to speak and, to, and never to live in absolutes. And that really resonated with me because it is something that I have. It's one of those kind of like revelations, ahas that I've had in the past few years is that for just about anything you could think of that you think you have a good idea of what it is, how it functions, and you try to, you know, almost extrapolate what you found out about that thing to another set of things, whether that be human beings or animals, whatever it is, there will, al there will almost always be an exception to whatever you think. There will almost always be somebody, someone, some situation, some circumstance that will prove you wrong, or at least that's been my experience. So, you know, like just to give you an example. So as you can well see, I have a whole head of like naturally curly hair, right? And so for years I had, you know, a stylist that I had entrusted to my tresses and you know, my stylists, they were black women. And I went to them for obvious reasons because, you know, I have a certain texture here and I feel like, you know, a black woman knows best how to do my hair. So true enough, that's the reason why I had the stylist that I had for the longest, except at the end of last year, I wanted to shoot my headshots over again and I needed to shoot some pictures just in general like for my brand and my business and everything and my normal stylist was not able to accommodate me so this left me in a bit of a pickle and I had to rely upon people's recommendations as to you know somebody that could do my hair my stylist had suggested that I reach out to this salon Lo and behold, I had no idea that there was like a salon here on the North Shore, about 30 minutes west from where I am, that did my hair, did my kind of hair, in fact. Like, let's be real. I'm being 100% real here. And so I'm like, really? They do natural hair? Because I'm looking up the salon and I'm seeing a lot of white girls with, you know, this pin straight hair. And I'm just like, really? What are they going to do with my hair? Because I don't wear my hair like that so much anymore. And so she's like, nope, trust me, there's a stylist there. He deals with curly hair, go see him. So I made the appointment with this gentleman and um, he's an Italian guy. <laughs> and he 
cooked my hair up. Like the reason why my hair looks so bomb is because of this man. But I share this story only because when we did meet and he did do my hair, as he was doing it, he kind of made a joke to me that, you know, I bet you didn't think that an Italian man would be doing your hair um, like this, you know, or be good at doing your hair or want to do your hair. And we both kind of laughed at it because it's so true. Like if anybody had told me that a, a white man, an Italian at that, would be able to care for my curly hair and my texture hair, I would have thought that they were crazy until this contradiction happened. So back to the prophet in the book um, and this whole thing of, you know, there being no absolutes in our experience that we should not speak of absolutes. And thank you for the hearts. Um, you know, that was one of those situations where a contradiction shook my my level of, of thought or my belief system, right? I had believed that a black woman was the only woman that could do my hair, you know, in this state. And I found out otherwise. And so one of the things that gets said in the book is instead of saying that I have found the truth, you should say I have found a truth. And I think that's so poignant. So it's like, you know, don't say that I've figured this out. Like, I think, you know, sometimes that people are like, oh, you know, no, I, I understand this now. Or, you know, you get to a point in life where you think like I've figured out life. I haven't gotten to that point, by the way, but I guess there are people that feel like they've figured it out. And, you know, what the prophet is saying is that shouldn't be your mindset. You might have figured out some things that are applicable to your experience in your life, but they're by no stretch of the imagination, the absolute truth. And even if you think you've gotten to the truth, life will continue to throw you things that make you feel like you're further and further away from an absolute truth. And I think that's true um, because I certainly feel that way. Like I had a discussion with a girlfriend this week about this very topic and we were both saying that, you know, in as much as we've learned so much since our teenage years, because we've known each other that long, it's almost like as we approach 40, we feel in a lot of ways like we don't know much at all. And we're just in this very um, interesting space of experiencing things and relearning and unlearning certain things. So, you know, there are, I think what the prophet was trying to get forth in this chapter is that there are no absolute truths. You, you're learning truths towards the ultimate truth, if you will. But nobody should be walking the earth saying that they they have found out the truth about everything there is to know here, right? Um, and he even goes on to say, he goes, you know, instead of saying that, like, people say, I found my soul, you know, doing X, Y, Z. He's saying, don't say that. He goes, you know, on the path that you're on, you can say, you know, I found a soul on the path that I'm on in the sense that, I think what he was talking about is that over the course of your life, you go through different seasons and different evolutions. And so for the path that you're on right now, you may be coming into contact with that version of your soul and maybe, but maybe down the line in a different 
part of your evolution, you may be encountering another piece of your soul at that point that is separate and apart and very different um, from one's earlier versions that you've met. And so I think that's what he was getting at when he said, don't say, you know, I've found myself or I know myself and I've found myself on this path. It's like, be in a constant state of learning yourself is what I took from it. And again, that resonates with me because I also feel like right now that I'm going through like a different phase or metamorphosis of who I am as a person. And so I can certainly understand like standing back from it and observing it as this is me now, you know, but like maybe in 10 years, there might be a different version and certainly 10 years prior and 20 years prior, there was a different version then too, right? So I, I think it's great advice and it also, it leaves a lot of room for growth where you, you know, some of the pressures that we all feel to be cemented, good, you know, perfect, um, all, <laughs> all knowing, you know, lacking failure, lacking mistakes and all these kinds of things. I think this gives you a better framework of saying, okay, I'm a version now and I'm examining that version for now on this path, but maybe I'll be a different version down the line and I'll observe that person too and honor that person at that time. I think that's what he was getting at here. So in any event, that is the prophet, not it, not in its entirety, because like I said, it's like 26 chapters in this book. They're, it's a very easy read. Like if you have time, you can knock it out in about two hours or so. But um, just way too much stuff to unpack here without losing you guys. So I just chose the chapters that really stuck out for me, although they are all phenomenal. And I really encourage you guys to read the book because I feel like, I feel like it's a good time for us to get back to examining, like, who are we, you know, how does this thing life kind of sort of work, you know, and what are some useful tools or, um, practices or ways of thinking mindsets that lead us to living better lives for ourselves, whatever that may be for you, right? It's not like one ultimate way, but whatever is meaningful for you. So for me, this is one of those books that I'm going to keep handy for a long time to come because I really feel like there are themes in it that I can be unpacking my entire life and it will have a different meaning at different junctures in my life depending on what's going on um so there i hope you guys like it and again like i mentioned in the beginning if you are on amazon prime um and on kindle it is a free read on kindle so if you want to jump into this grab it on kindle i think if you buy the book it's pretty nominal at this point again it was written in 1923 so there's been several versions of it since but it's worth a purchase as well and I will be purchasing it just because I think it's that good of a book that it deserves to be memorialized that way so there 
that's your third book talk. Um, next week will be my last. Like I said, I think I will bring this back in the fall unless there's some urging um, that I get from you guys as to I, me continuing it into March. Then I'll explore that. But um, if not, I'm going to stop the book talks after next week and get back to some regular topics and bring it back in the fall because I enjoy it. Not because you guys tell me anything. I enjoy it. And I'm realizing by looking at the viewership that you guys like it too because viewership's way, way, way up. So thank you so much for everybody who's watching it live and watching it on replay because I see you. Can't like shout you all out separately, but I do see you and I appreciate you for indulging me in something that I'm just trying. Honestly, I had no idea which way this was going to go. So there's that. Um, so housekeeping topic. So like I said in the beginning of the cast, Black Blogs Matter is still going on. We are in week five. We're doing it for 15 weeks this year. And so there's another 10 weeks of topics going on. Last week, I wrote about the existential problem of coonery. So if you're interested in that, you should head to the aristocracyofhr.com to look at that. This week's theme is working woke versus woke work. And, um, and just to give you a little tidbit about that, it's basically looking at, you know, how difficult is it as a person of color to work from a place in which you are um, fully empowered to, to honor yourself, to honor your culture, to honor who you are um, versus, you know, are you just out there doing woke work or work for yourself, you know, off, to, off the clock? You know, is it something you have to keep off the clock or are you able to walk the talk 24-7 in the work you do. And I think it's it's an interesting conversation. Um, it kind of ties into what I discussed last week. Like I said, the article is the existential problem of coonery um, because I really dive deep into, you know, how much of yourself as a person of color can you show up to work with depending on your organization and how much of yourself do you have to sacrifice in your career, given the organization you work for? And what does that look like? And I've experienced it, so I get pretty blunt about it. But this week's theme kind of ties back there and also ties back to the week that we talked about uh, wokeness, which a lot of the writers kind of just spent a lot of time defining what woke is because a lot of people still don't know what it means to be woke and i and i think in a lot of ways being woke is is evolving like i think we're trying to figure out what that is and and maybe we'll figure it out in time but that's what's going on with black blocks matter like i said this sweatshirt is so bomb so comfy if you want one you need to get in touch with at the buzz on hr and head up to her teespring store and get you one of these because like for real I mean I really want to wear this to wear it for cuteness but it's so comfy I'm inclined to sleep in it I'm just being honest it's really that cute and comfy so doing great things honestly with the Black Lives Matter challenge 
if you're on Twitter, you need to get to that hashtag and check out Black Lives Matter. The writing this year is tops. It's amazing. It is thought-provoking. People of all backgrounds, all cultures are raving about it. So, you know, if it sounds like something that you're like, oh, what the hell is that? You know, like, why does that need to be highlighted? I promise you, don't judge a book by its cover. There's some really exceptional writing going on on that hashtag. So, and the dialogue is amazing. So please, 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 please support the Black Lives Matter challenge. And if you are a writer yourself, there's still time to get involved. Like I said, there's 10 weeks left. So, you know, if you want to jump in on one of the topics or one of the topics stick out to you, we would love to have you. Um, that's pretty much what's going on with me, guys. Like I said, I'll be back next week. I think next week I'll share some more with you about events that I have coming up in the event that I'm in your city and you might want to say hello or if in the event that you're going to an event that I'm going to it's always great to connect so I think next week I'll share a little bit more about what I'm I've got going on in the next few months so that we can connect with one another because that's what this is about right so again thank you so much for watching live I hope you will get the book um please watch the previous book talk so last week mind right life right by ash cash and uh the dear queen journey by sylvester mcnutt please watch those as well and i hope you like those as well and thank you thank you replay viewers you guys are the bomb i see you and i will see you guys next week all right take care bye